Chapter Fourteen of the Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter Fourteen. Theodore Roosevelt as a Man of Letters. One. The more closely we scrutinize Theodore Roosevelt's life, and the more carefully we consider his many ventures in many totally different fields of human activity, the less likely we are to challenge the assertion that his was the most interesting career ever vouchsafed to any American, more interesting even than Benjamin Franklin's, fuller, richer, and more varied. Like Franklin, Roosevelt enjoyed life intensely. He was frank in declaring that he had been happy beyond the common lot of man, and we cannot doubt that Franklin had the same feeling. The most obvious cause of the happiness and of the interest of their contrasting careers is that they had each of them an incessant and insatiable curiosity, which kept forcing them to push their inquiries into a variety of subjects wholly unrelated one to another. The many-sided Franklin was the title which Paul Leister Ford gave to his biography, and Roosevelt was even more polygonal. Like Franklin again, Roosevelt will hold a secure place among our statesmen, our men of science, and our men of letters, demanding due appraisal by experts in statecraft, in natural history, and in literature. But they differ in this, that Roosevelt was an author by profession, and Franklin was an author by accident. Roosevelt had looked forward to literature as a calling, whereas Franklin produced literature only as a by-product. Excepting poor Richard's almanac, Franklin never composed anything in the hope or desire for fame or for money, or even in response to a need for self-expression. He never published a book, and if he could return to earth he would indubitably be surprised to discover that he held an important place in the histories of American literature. Roosevelt was as distinctly a man of letters as he was a man of action. He made himself known to the public, first of all, as the historian of the American Navy in the War of 1812. He followed this up with the four strenuously documented volumes of his Winning of the West, and amid all the multiplied activities of his later years, he made leisure for the appreciation of one or another of the books he had found to his taste. 2. It must be admitted that in the decade which elapsed after he left the White House, his intense interest in public affairs led him to devote a large part of his energy to the consideration of the pressing problems of the hour to topics of immediate importance, to themes of only an ephemeral value, sufficient unto the day. In three or four different periodicals he served as contributing editor. In other words, he was a writer of signed editorials, in which he was always free to express his own views frankly and fully without undue regard for that mysterious entity, the policy of the paper. These contemporary contributions to dailies and weeklies and monthlies are journalism rather than literature, and the more completely they fulfill the purpose of the moment, the less do they demand preservation. Now and again they have the over-emphatic repetitions which are more or less justified by the conditions of journalism. But in these same ten years Roosevelt wrote also his two books of travel in Africa and in South America as vivacious as they are conscientious, his alluring and self-revelatory autobiography, his two volumes of essays and addresses, History as Literature, 
and a book lover's holidays in the open both of them pungent with his individuality it is not always in fact it is not often that the accomplished man of letters has the essential equipment of the journalist he is likely to be more or less academic and to lack the simplicity the singleness of purpose the directness of statement demanded in the discussion of the events of the moment the editorial stands in the same relation to literature that the stump speech does to the stately oration the editorial like the stump speech aims at immediate effect and it is privileged to be more emphatic than might be becoming in a more permanent effort it was perhaps roosevelt's wide experience in addressing the public from the platform which made it easier for him to qualify as a contributing editor and to master the method of the newspaper in his state papers and in his messages he had already proved that he had the gift of the winged phrase keenly pointed and barbed to flesh itself in the memory he had preached the doctrine of the strenuous life and he had expounded the policy of the square deal he had denounced some men as undesirable citizens and others as malefactors of large wealth and when he took up the task of journalism he was happily inspired to the minting of other memorable phrases there was for example an unforgettable felicity in his characterization of the weasel words that sometimes suck the life out of a phrase seemingly strong and bold never did he use smooth and sleek rhetoric to disguise vagueness of thought in the periodical as on the platform he spoke out of the fullness of his heart after his mind had clarified his emotion so that it poured forth with crystalline lucidity there was no mistaking the full intent of his own words he knew what he meant to say and he knew how to say it with simple sincerity and with vigorous vivacity his straightforwardness prevented his ever employing phrases that faced both ways and that provided rat holes from which he might crawl out his style was tinglingly alive it was masculine and vascular and it was always the style of a gentleman and a scholar he could puncture with a rapier and he could smash with a sledgehammer and if he used the latter more often than the former it was because of his consuming hatred of things unmanly ignominious infamous journalism was young indeed one might say that it was still waiting to be born when franklin put forth his pamphlets appealing to the scattered colonies to get together and to make common cause against the french who had let loose the indians to harry our borders franklin was cannily persuasive making use of no drum-like words empty loud sounding and monotonous but there burnt in his pages the same pure fire of patriotism that lighted roosevelt's more impassioned exhortations for us to arouse ourselves from lethargy that we might do our full duty in the war which saved civilization from the barbarian where franklin addressed himself to common sense roosevelt called upon the imagination perhaps franklin as is the tendency of a practical man a little distrusted the imagination but roosevelt as practical as franklin had imagination himself and he knew that the american people also had it it is by imagination by the vision and the faculty divine that now and again an occasional address like lincoln's at gettysburg or a contributed editorial like roosevelt's on the great adventure transcends its immediate and temporary purpose and is lifted aloft up to the serener heights of pure literature it is not without intention that the great adventure has been set by the side of the gettysburg address they are akin and there is in roosevelt's paragraphs not a little of the poetic elevation and of the exalted dignity of phrase which combine to make the address a masterpiece of english prose
consider the opening words of the great adventure and take note of the concision like that of a greek inscription only those are fit to live who do not fear to die and none are fit to die who have shrunk from the joy of life and the duty of life both life and death are parts of the same great adventure never yet was worthy adventure worthily carried through by the man who put his personal safety first never yet was a country worth living in unless its sons and daughters were of that stern stuff which bade them die for it at need and never yet was a country worth dying for unless its sons and daughters thought of life as something not concerned only with the selfish evanescence of the individual but as a link in the great chain of creation and causation so that each person is seen in his true relations as an essential part of the whole whose life must be made to serve the larger and continuing life of the whole consider also these words a little later in the same article if the only son who is killed at the front has no brother because his parents coldly dreaded to play their part in the great adventure of life then our sorrow is not for them but solely for the son who himself dared the great adventure of death if however he is the only son because of the unseen powers denied others to the love of his father and mother then we mourn doubly with them because their darling went up to the sword of azrael because he drank the dark drink proffered by the death angel three roosevelt's style is firm and forthright and its excellence is due to his having learnt the lesson of the masters of english he wrote well because he had read widely and deeply because he had absorbed good literature for the sheer delight he took in it consciously or unconsciously he enriched his vocabulary accumulating a store of strong words which he made flexible bending them to do his bidding but he was never bookish in his diction he never went in quest of recondite vocables partly because his taste was refined but chiefly because he was ever seeking to be understanded of the people like lord morley he had little of the verbal curiosity contemned by milton as toilsome vanity and he was ready with montaigne to laugh at fools who will go a quarter of a league to run after a fine word to him life was more important than literature and what he was forever seeking to put into his literature was life itself he was a nature lover but what he loved best was human nature yet his relish for life was scarcely keener than his relish for literature we may think of him as preeminently an outdoors man and such he was of course but he was also an indoors man a denizen of the library as he was an explorer of the forest indoors and out he was forever reading and he could not venture into the wilds of africa in search of big game without taking along with him the volumes of the pigskin library which testified at once to the persistence and to the diversity of his tastes as a reader he devoured books voraciously all sorts of books old and new established classics and evanescent bestsellers history and fiction poetry and criticism travels on land and voyages by sea to use an apt phrase of dr holmes he was at home with books as a stable boy is with horses he might have echoed lowell's declaration that he was a bookman the title of one of his later collections of essays is revelatory of his attitude toward himself a book lover's holidays in the open for even when he went into the open he wanted to have a book within reach of course he enjoyed certain books and certain kinds of books better than others of all shakespeare's tragedies he best liked the martial macbeth preferring it to the more introspective hamlet 
he was not unlike the lad who was laid up and whose mother proposed to read the bible to him whereupon he asked her to pick out the fightingest parts he had a special regard for the masculine writers for mallory more particularly holding the mort d'arthur to be a better piece of work than the more delicately decorated idols of the king which tennyson made out of it in fact roosevelt once went so far as to dismiss tennyson's elaborate transpositions as tales of blameless curates clad in tin mail he enjoyed writing as much as he did reading and as a result his works go far to fill a five-foot shelf of their own when the man of action that he was had been out in search of new experiences and in the hunt for new knowledge the man of letters that he was also impelled him to lose no time in setting down the story of his wanderings that others might share in the pleasure of his adventure without undergoing its perils being a normal human being he liked to celebrate himself and to be his own boswell but he was never vain or conceited in his record of his own sayings and doings he had the saving sense of humor delighting in nothing more than to tell a tale against himself he was not self-conscious nor thick-skinned and he laughed as heartily as any one when mr dooley pretended to mistake the title of his account of the work of the rough riders calling it alone in cubia perhaps it was because he was so abundantly gifted with the sense of humor that he had a shrewd insight into character and that he could depict it incisively by the aid of a single significant anecdote in sketching the many strange creatures with whom he was associated in the far west in south america and in africa he showed that he had the kodak eye of the born reporter so it is that he gave us the two delightful volumes for which he drew upon his experiences as a rancher in the west the stirring book devoted to the deeds of his dearly beloved rough riders my regiment and the solid tomes in which he set down the story of his trips as a faunal naturalist in africa and in south america they are all books pulsing with life vibrating with vitality and they are all books unfailingly interesting to the reader because whatever is narrated in them has been unfailingly interesting to the writer walter bagehot once suggested that the reason why there are so few really good books out of all the immense multitude which pour forth from the press is that the men who have seen things and done things cannot write whereas the men who can write have not done anything or seen anything roosevelt's adventure books are really good because after having seen many things and done many things he could write about them so vividly and so sharply as to make his readers see them perhaps the autobiography ought to be classed with the earlier adventure books since they were also autobiographic it is a candid book it puts before us the man himself as reflected in his own mirror but it is not complete since it was composed not in the retrospective serenity of old age but while the autobiographer was in the thick of the fight compelled to silence about many of the events of his career which we should like to see elucidated it was published serially month by month and perhaps because of the pressure under which it was undertaken it seems to have a vague air of improvisation as though it had not been as solidly thought out and as cautiously written out as one or another of the earlier books the hunting trips of a ranchman for example or the rough riders but it abides as a human document and it explains why the autobiographer's buoyant personality appealed so intimately to the american people four a book lover's holidays in the open contains two characteristic essays both of them delightful in their zest and in their individuality one is on books for holidays in the open 
and the other is about the author's wild hunting companions a searching and sympathetic appreciation of the human types developed by the wildlife of the lessening wild places still uninvaded by advancing civilization in history as literature and other essays there are other papers as characteristic and as attractive three of them are the addresses which he delivered on his triumphant return from his african journeys at the universities of oxford and berlin and at the sorbonne in paris they represent the high-water mark of his work as a constructive thinker they are the lofty and dignified utterances of a statesman who was a practical politician of immense experience in the conduct of public affairs and who was also a man of letters ambitious to present worthily the results of his experience and of his meditation these disquisitions on themes seemingly so remote from his special fields of activity as the biological analogies of history for example have been called daring and in fact they are daring but they justify themselves since they disclose roosevelt's possession of the assimilated information and the interpreting imagination which could survey the whole field of history past and present using the present to illuminate the past and the past as a beacon to the present and calling upon natural history to shed light upon the evolution of human history these addresses are representative of roosevelt when he chose to indulge himself in historic speculation and in the same volume there is an essay less ambitious but highly individual in theme and in treatment and quite as characteristic as its stately companions this is the discussion at once scholarly and playful of dante in the bowery a paper which could have been written only by a lover of lofty poetry who had been a practical politician in new york to roosevelt dante's mighty vision is not a frigid classic demanding formal lip service but a living poem with a voice as warm as if it had been born only yesterday to him the figures who pass along dante's pages are not graven images tagged with explanatory footnotes they are human beings like unto us the men of today and of new york thus it is that roosevelt is led to dwell on the unaffectedness with which dante dares to be of his own town and of his own time and the simplicity with which dante wishing to assail those guilty of crimes of violence mentions in one stanza attila and in the next two local highwaymen by no means as important as jesse james and billy the kid less formidable as fighting men and with adventure less startling and less varied roosevelt called attention to the fact that of all the poets of the nineteenth century walt whitman was the only one who dared to use the bowery that is use anything that was striking and vividly typical of the humanity around him as dante used the ordinary humanity of his day and even whitman was not quite natural in doing so for he always felt that he was defying conventions and prejudices of his neighbors and his self-consciousness made him a little defiant roosevelt asked why it is that to us moderns in the twentieth century it should seem improper and even ludicrous to illustrate human nature by examples chosen alike from castle garden and the Perius, from tammany and the roman mob organized by the foes or friends of caesar to dante such feeling itself would have been inexplicable five varied and brilliant as were roosevelt's contributions to other departments of literature it is more than probable that his ultimate reputation as a man of letters will most securely rest upon his stern labors as a historian not on the brisk and lively little book on new york which he contributed to freeman's historic towns series 
not on the biographies of Benton and Governor Morris, which he wrote for the American Statesman series, not on the shrewd and sympathetic life of Cromwell, not on the stirring and picturesque hero tales of American history, which he prepared in collaboration with Henry Cabot Lodge, but on the four stately volumes of his most energetic and ambitious undertaking, the story of the winning of the West, which he began in his early manhood and which he was always hoping to carry further. Macaulay once praised the work of one of his contemporaries because it exhibited the most valuable qualities of the historian, perspicuousness, conciseness, great diligence in examining authorities, great judgment in weighing testimony, and great impartiality in estimating characters. And no competent reader of the winning of the West could fail to find all these qualities in its pages. A later historian, Professor Morse Stevens, set up four tests for the valuation of historical writing. First, the modern historian must have conscientiously mastered all the documents relating to his period at first hand. Secondly, he must appreciate all accessible primary material with careful weighing of evidence and trained faculty of judgment. Thirdly, he must possess absolute impartiality, in intention as well as in act. And fourthly, he must also possess the one necessary feature of literary style in a history, clearness of statement. And the winning of the West can withstand the application of all four of these tests. In other words, it is scientific in the collection and comparison and analysis of the accessible facts, and it is artistic in its presentation to the reader of the results of the writer's indefatigable research. As The Winning of the West was written by Roosevelt, it could not help being readable. Every chapter and every page is alive and alert with his own forceful and enthusiastic personality. This readability is not attained by any facile eloquence or any glitter of rhetoric, although it has passages, and not a few of them, which linger in the memory because of their felicitous phrasing. The book is abidingly readable because it is the result of deliberate literary art employed to present honestly the result of honest scientific inquiry. This is his sterling virtue as a historian, fittingly acknowledged by his fellow workers in this field when they elected him to the presidency of the American Historical Association. In an evaluation of the final volumes of Parkman's fascinating record of the fateful struggle between the French and the English for the control of North America, an article written in 1892, while that great historian was still living, Roosevelt remarked that modern historians always lay great stress upon visiting the places where the events they described occurred, and he commented that, although this is advisable, it is far less important than the acquisition of an intimate acquaintance with the people and the life described. Then he asserted that it is precisely this experience which Mr. Parkman has had and which renders his work so especially valuable. He knows the Indian character and the character of the white frontiersman by personal observation as well as by books, neither knowledge by itself being of much value for a historian. In consequence, he writes with a clear and keen understanding of the conditions. Roosevelt himself had the clear and keen understanding of the conditions with which he credited Parkman, in whose footsteps he was following, since the winning of the West may be called a continuation of France and England and North America. Like Parkman, Roosevelt was a severely trained scientific investigator, who was also a born storyteller. If the historian is only an investigator, the result is likely to be a justification of the old jibe which defined history as 
an arid region abounding in dates and if he is only a storyteller his narrative will speedily disintegrate the true historian roosevelt asserted in history as literature his presidential address to the american historical association will bring the past before our eyes as if it were the present he will make us see as living men the hard-faced archers of agincourt and the war-worn spearmen who followed alexander down beyond the rim of the known world we shall hear great on the coast of britain the keels of the low dutch sea thieves whose children's children were to inherit unknown continents we shall see conquerors riding forth to victories that have changed the course of time we shall see the terrible horsemen of timur the lame ride over the roof of the world we shall hear the drums beat as the armies of gustavus and frederick and napoleon drive forward to victory we shall see the glory of triumphant violence and the revel of those who do wrong in high places and the broken-hearted despair that lies beneath the glory and the revel we shall also see the supreme righteousness of the wars for freedom and justice and know that the men who fell in those wars made all mankind their debtors six at the end of the foreword to a book lover's holidays there is a noble passage which calls for quotation here as an example of roosevelt's command of nervous english measured and cadence it is proposed in proof of the assertion that the joy of living is his who has the heart to demand it the beauty and charm of the wilderness are his for the asking for the edges of the wilderness lie close beside the beaten roads of present travel he can see the red splendor of desert sunsets and the unearthly glory of the afterglow on the battlements of desolate mountains in sapphire gulfs of ocean he can visit islets above which the wings of myriads of sea-fowl make a kind of shifting cuneiform script in the air he can ride along the brink of the stupendous cliff-walled canyon where eagles soar below him and cougars make their lairs on the edges and harry the bighorn sheep he can journey through the northern forests the home of the giant moose the forests of fragrant and murmuring life in summer the iron-bound and melancholy forests of winter theodore roosevelt had the heart to demand it and the joy of living was his 1919 end of chapter 14